Now in your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. While you're turning there, let's do a little bit of recap. It's been a few weeks where we uh, ended a couple weeks ago when Pastor Keith was uh, urging on 1 Corinthians, well, it's the end of chapter 12. And just a couple of reminders from that as we go into our uh, passage this morning. Is what Paul's teaching in chapter 12 is that there's a variety of gifts within the body of Christ. Some have gifts that seem to, by the world's eyes, have higher honor than others. And usually those are the gifts that are uh, easy to see. Right? So, um, you know, the ones who play music on stage, or the ones who uh, speak from the pulpit. You know, those, those, those tend to be easier to see. And so sometimes they get, I would say, the honor, I would also say sometimes the flattery of men. But what Paul's saying is that each and every gift in the body of Christ is essential. It doesn't matter if you're a great speaker or a great musician. It doesn't matter if you are the one who quietly uh, cleans on Sunday mornings before everyone else gets here and nobody knows what you do. The point is, is that everybody, regardless of how God has gifted you, is essential within the body of Christ. Our problem is that we tend to elevate certain gifts above others. One of the things also from chapter 12 that we should uh, remember is um, that we shouldn't be coveting the way that God has gifted others. Sometimes that can be the challenge as well. Can you turn me down uh, a a bit here? Um, So, thanks. So, we should not be coveting the way that God has gifted others because He has gifted you if you are a born-again believer. He has gifted you for the body of Christ and He has gifted you specifically for the church that you are a part of because as the Word of God tells us, He is the one who places you where He desires you. And He's not going to be doing that for no reason. Well, Paul's going to talk about this morning, though, because he ends verse 12 with uh, not desiring the gifts of others, but instead earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then he says, and I show you still a more excellent way. And that takes us into our chapter this morning on what we should desire above all else is love. Regardless of the gifts that we are given, What we need above all else is a foundation of love. And so this is our introduction. This morning, I'm only covering three verses. It's our introduction into the famous love chapter that is uh, read at pretty much every wedding. And so if you've been to enough weddings, you probably have heard it. Um, But what we're going to actually talk about this morning is just the first three verses. And what I want to um, discuss is the warning of the hypocrisy of spiritual gifts without the foundation of love. There's a hypocrisy in using spiritual gifts without 
the foundation of love. And so I've split this up into three categories on the three verses. Um, There's gifts of revelation, which we'll talk about. There's gifts of power, and there's gifts of service. And the temptation for all of us that we will see um, is that in all of these, there's a temptation for self-boasting and self-glorification. And so Paul warns his readers in Corinth that if these gifts are wielded without love, they are useless, or worse, even a detriment to the body of Christ. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, do not have love, it profits me nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless our time together. Lord, Lord give me uh, courage to uh, be truthful this morning to your word as you have prepared me uh, by your spirit, Lord, uh, that I would be an instrument and a herald of the good news of the gospel and the truth of your revelation, God. And I pray for all of us that we would be changed by your word and that those who have ears to hear, let them hear, Lord, that would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and conformed more and more into the image of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name this morning. Amen. 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 So in your bulletins, that first title there, it says, Super Spiritual and Loveless. This is this first verse. If I were to speak with human or angelic tongues, the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a ringing gong or a clashing cymbal. Now, really, uh, Paul, starting here, through verse 15 actually uses a number of musical metaphors when discussing spiritual gifts. And he actually talks about five different instruments in the next few chapters. Here, though, the ringing gong or the clashing cymbal is it's two ways of really referring to the same instrument. And, and this is, uh, contrary to what some believe, this is not based on pagan worship. Um, sometimes the, the trouble when we study the Word of God is our tendency to think that the historical context has more to do with the Greek world than with the Jewish history and and Jewish thought. But early Christian worship practices in the Roman Empire really reflected Jewish thought more than Greek thought. And even though the Greek thought and, and Greek influence played a role, for the most part, as we look at history and we see the way that early Christians would have sought to practice faithful worship, it of it would have been resembling faithful uh, Hebrew worship under the new covenant because that was their lineage. That was their family history. And so when we look at a passage like this, 
um, really this idea of a symbol, right, this clanging symbol has to do with Old Testament worship. And I'll tell you why. But first, let me show you how it's used, the same word in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, it's used in 1 Samuel 18.6 as a uh, symbol or tambourine for the public celebration of victory over God's enemies. And in 2 Samuel 6.5, as well as in 1 Chronicles 13.8, it's used for the public celebration and the restoration of the Ark of the Covenant being returned to Jerusalem. And then, in 1 Chronicles 15.19 and 16.5, it is actually used as a priestly instrument in the temple for temple worship. In fact, Asaph, who if you've read Psalms, you've noticed written a lot of songs. He was a worship leader in Israel. The worship leader of the priests is a, he's called in 1 Chronicles 16.5, he is a player of the symbols. The problem with the tongue, with the gift of tongues that Paul is confronting here, is not simply that they're a loud noise. That's really not the issue. In fact, 1 Chronicles 16.4 tells us that the priests were called to make a loud noise with the different instruments and with the symbols. What we need to recognize here to understand what Paul is saying is that the Old Testament music in these passages is associated with building the temple. It's associated with the building of the house of God and the revelation from the priests and the prophets that would follow. However, the symbols were never played alone. Only certain people were allowed to play but it was in the context of uniting all of God's people at these festivals and at the temple. And this, herein lies the problem for Paul. Now let's look at this metaphor that he uses again for the early church. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy and a clanging cymbal. Tongue speakers in the early church that Paul is confronting here because they had separated themselves from the rest of the church as those who were super spiritual. And so this gift that was supposed to be used within the symphony of the rest of the gifts of the body of Christ has now separated itself as an instrument that is supposed to be helping with revelation because it is a gift of revelation but being performed instead for their own glory and their own benefit. And so therefore, it completely ignores the revelatory purpose of the gift. And so for them, it wasn't for love of the body of Christ, it was for attention. And so the problem for Paul is that these utterances in tongues have no distinction or explanation and therefore they are useless for the church. It gives no meaning for the church and we'll see in chapter 14, this is why Paul says that there must be an interpreter for the gift of tongues. 
It is not enough for an instrument to simply make a sound. The instrument must communicate clearly. It must play the right notes and the right chords. Everybody, even if you're not musical, you can tell when somebody doesn't know how to play the instrument. You can tell when someone is playing a song and then they start playing the wrong chords. It's confusing. It's disjointed. It's not in line with the rest of the symphony. So similarly, when Paul is confronting this gift of tongues, what he's talking about is, look, you've separated yourself from the rest of the body of Christ in the way that you are using this gift. And so because it is not from this foundation of love, you have become a solo instrument. And it is a solo instrument that does not on its own communicate. It's lacking. And therefore, it's confusing to the rest of the body of Christ. And so Paul uses uh, really hyperbole here with the tongues of men and angels to express his point. See, in Scripture, what we see in the New Testament is this gift of tongues is used to speak different languages of men, to communicate the revelation of God. That's how it's used in the book of Acts. As far as the tongues of angels, there's really no clear biblical evidence for people speaking what today sounds like gibberish. And then saying it's a heavenly language. At best, the biblical New Testament evidence that we have for the language of angels, if there is one, is that it is inexpressible because we see in Revelation 14.2 that it is like the sound of many waters. It's, it's an inexpressible tongue for man. And man also, according to 2 Corinthians 12.14, isn't even permitted to speak it. And really, even more important than that, and what this angelic language might sound like is that it really misses the point. Basically, what Paul is saying is that if he could speak all the languages of heaven and earth, even with the eloquence of an angelic messenger of God, meaning even with perfect revelation, without love, it's confusing. Without love, it's of no benefit to the body of Christ. Without love, the gifts of revelation are just like uncommunicative noise. It distinguishes itself from the rest of the body of Christ. And worse yet, it confuses the body of Christ. I mean, even think of the way that tongues is used many times across uh, in charismatic circles today. It's, it's gibberish that people speak. It doesn't communicate revelation because there's no interpreter. And there can't be because it's not real. And so it does nothing but communicate confusion. And again, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but um, it's subjective instead of objective, right? So therefore, you know, someone could say, well, I'm speaking in tongues, and there's really no way to verify whether or not that's true. And so it only produces chaos and confusion, and this is the opposite of what tongues was intended for by God. It was to reveal God and his word to those who could not otherwise understand. 
but the tongues we see today cloud God and make his word unrecognizable. So without love as the foundation for the gifts even of revelation, they become confusing to the body of Christ. Verse 2 says, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. These are gifts of power. What I mean by that is um, prophecy, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, prophecy is speaking or exhorting others on behalf of God. A prophet's job is to reveal and exhort Right To exhort like the prophets of old that demanded repentance for Israel. The prophets today exhort from the word of God and demand life change and repentance. Teachers are about knowing and communicating the deep mysteries of God's word. A teacher, so a prophet reveals and a teacher communicates knowing and communicating deep and profound things revealed in Scripture that cannot be understood by the flesh because they are spiritually appraised. And then the last one is faith. Faith to move mountains. And so I did some further research on this, on how do we understand faith as a gift of power in this context here, and really it has to do with faith being displayed through prayer. Think of what Paul just said here and see see if you can think of a time where Jesus said something similar. Faith that can remove mountains. So if we look at Mark chapter 11, and if I can flip here quickly. Mark chapter 11 and verse 23. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you will receive them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. So there we see it used in the context of prayer. Matthew 17 Verse 20, Jesus says, And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. He's speaking in the context of um, a demoniac, a man who was demon-possessed that the disciples could not cast out the demon. They said, why can't we cast it out? And he's talking about little faith, but it's in the context of prayer again. And then finally, Matthew chapter 21, verse 21, says, and Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So what is this power here, this faith, how is the, this power gift, so to speak, of faith displayed? It's displayed through the power of prayer. But what Paul's getting at with this lack of love is we may exhort like a prophet, 
We may have the knowledge of a teacher. We may even be devoted to prayer and fasting. But without love, we are nothing. Without love, we have no power. All the knowledge, all the exhorting, all the prayer and fasting cannot overcome sin without love. It cannot save the lost. It cannot change the heart. It is powerless against the world and the devil. Now, when it comes to exhortation and teaching, it can sometimes seem loveless because it is not necessarily nice. And when we get to our last section, I'm prefacing because you'll pro- you may think that about me. But prophets, this is because prophets are more concerned with repentance than with how you feel. And teachers are more concerned with truth than how you feel. And so this tends to rub people the wrong way, especially when you come in, right, and you have a presupposition, you have a worldview, and that clashes with the Word of God, and it clashes with the preacher. Your first thought is, oh, I don't like that. Right, because nobody likes hearing that they're wrong. Nobody likes hearing that They've been believing a lie or deceived, but quite frankly, it is the loving thing to do. So this lack of love that Paul's talking about has less to do with um, a teacher's dedication to truth or a prophet's dedication to exhorting to repentance and life change. It has uh, more to do with um, really this absence of the character traits of a loving person that will Uh, that we won't talk about this morning, but that Paul will talk about uh, later on in this chapter. You know, sometimes with with teachers and, um, you know, Pastor Keith and I have talked about this, but sometimes with teachers, uh, they can come across too black and white when it comes to things like theology. And in some cases, this this can certainly be true. But in many cases, it's also just because of different giftings. But the point is that there is not power in any of these things without the foundation of love. It can look like power to others, right? What a great preacher. Wow, he can really deliver a message. What a man of faith. What a woman of prayer. And plenty of people can be deceived by that. But God knows the truth. And God knows if it comes from a place of love or if it's from a place of self-boasting and self-glorification. The last one is verse 3. It says, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned and have love, it profits me nothing. Of service. So we had inflation, tongues, right? And the problem of that is it, it, has, it causes confusion, right? It doesn't reveal God if it's not done out of love, right? Then we have these gifts of power, prophecy, teaching, prayer. But if it's not from a foundation of love, it really has no power. It's done in the flesh. It's meaningless. 
It doesn't have power over sin. How many times have we tried to conquer sin in our lives, but we've been failing to do so? And you've probably heard it say, it's a lot of times an obedience problem is because of a love problem. I can't tell you how many times. Look, I study the Word of God a lot. I, I mean, I do it for, you know, church, right? For, for, for my ministry. I also do it for school. But I'll tell you this, all the studying in the world is not what's going to change my heart if it's not from a foundation of love. I can read the Bible back and forth. I can learn the languages. I can learn the theology. But it's not going to be that that conquers sin in my life. It has no power on its own. It has to be from this foundation of love. Finally, in verse 3, we see gifts of service. Right? Paul talks about this generosity of giving all I have to feed the poor. It looks a lot to the outside world like loving neighbor. But Paul is saying that the act of giving can actually be loveless. Giving to the poor will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. Simply going through the motions of loving your neighbor will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. And part of the reason of this confusion, even for our day, especially for our day today, is that lately, loving neighbor, love of neighbor, has been used as actually a weapon by the world and by false teachers in the church to guilt and manipulate people. This is where people will get upset with me, but that's okay. This is what we hear. If you don't wear your mask, you don't love your neighbor. If you go to church and everybody else is staying home, you don't love your neighbor. Stay home, save lives. White Christians don't love their black or brown or female or gay or trans neighbors unless they follow the left agenda. The non-Christian God-hating world is trying to manipulate Christians. And really what they're trying to do is this is an age of guilt manipulators. They're trying to guilt each and every one of us by telling you what God means when he says, love thy neighbor. They don't know God. They hate God. But they want to tell you what it means to love thy neighbor. And there are so many Christians who buy it hook, line, and sinker. But really, they don't know God. They don't love God. They don't love neighbor. They twist scripture. And even some pastors who used to be committed to the gospel and to preaching the word of God have been twisted by this. But see, here's the problem. The problem is not the mask wearing. The problem is you cannot be guilted or manipulated into loving your neighbor. If that's what it takes, then it's not from a place of love. If you feel guilted into doing what the world tells you to show love to somebody, then for you, it's not even from a place of love. It doesn't profit you anything. It's worthless. 
And why is it worthless? Because if you're guilted or manipulated into loving your neighbor, then the reality is you don't actually love your neighbor. You fear man. And what it comes down to for a lot of people is you, what you want is for people to think you love your neighbor when you actually love yourself and your image. So let me translate what Paul says into our modern day. If I give all my money to government programs to feed the poor, to give free housing, to get free health care, if I wear my mask whenever I'm told, if I stay home or get the vaccine, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. None of these things will profit you anything if it does not come from the foundation of love. And one last thing on this here, this little tangent, but I I find it interesting and, and even ironic that so many Christians jump on the bandwagon of loving neighbor according to whatever the culture or political leaders or false teachers in the church tell them. Because it's popular. Yet many of these same Christians and many of these same pastors have been all but silent when it came to abortion. And many of them are almost silent when it comes to issues of the homosexual agenda or the rampant divorce that takes place within the church or the the adultery that happens or even abuse within the body of Christ until that became popular a couple years ago as well. See, these things don't stem from service. They don't stem from generosity or loving the neighbor. They stem from a love of the world and a fear of man. But they don't, a lot of people don't speak on the things from the pulpit that aren't yet popular in the world because then they won't be popular. But you'll see them going to such great lengths and indignation to, you know, um, plead with Christians to fight, uh, sorry, um, to make these viral videos or to write blog posts and articles. So here's the problem. And this really tends to be the problem with all of them. But it really stems from a place of cowardice and hypocrisy. See, when we don't have love and we try to use the gifts that God has given us, we use them to please man, to exalt ourselves. And as we'll see later on, that this is actually not loving neighbor. This is not loving the body of Christ. This is pharisaical. And it's hypocritical. Paul goes on and he says, um, right, even if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, there's a textual variant here. Um, it could either be to be burned or that I might boast. I think the evidence points more to Paul is saying that even if I surrender my body that I might boast and There's a couple reasons, grammatical reasons for that. Um, 
But the, the point, though, is that Paul is talking about martyrdom. He's saying that even if you serve up into the point of death, right? Early Christians identified with their Savior when they were martyred for Christ, right? Even, there's even the early Christian saying of the seed of martyrs, or sorry, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And even the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6 are told that their blood would be avenged and then they are given white robes. See, I think what Paul's saying here is you can be devoted enough to religion to die for it. You can be devoted enough to religion even to die for it. Right? This is what we see in, you know, well, this is what we see with radical Islam. Right? You can be devoted enough to a lie to die for it. But even with Christians, Christians can be dedicated to the Christian religion even to the point of death. But, but if it is without love, then there's no glory. If it is without love, it profits them nothing before God. On the outside, it looks like you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength. But inside, you're dead. Going through the motions of loving God and loving neighbor will not merit your salvation. It will be of no profit to you if it is not from the foundation of love. So all your service to God and all your service to others is meaningless. It has no eternal value. In fact, in Isaiah, even your best service to God and to others is nothing but filthy rags. It's unclean to God. And I know that there are some of you, even in this church, that are banking on your service to God and to others. And on the outside, it may look like you are really dedicated. You're a dedicated Christian. You're dedicated to loving others. And that's perhaps what you want people to think and perhaps even what you think yourself. But it is God who examines our hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows if the service that we're doing is just to look good to others or if it really is coming from a foundation of love for God and love for neighbor. And all the service in the world will not help you on the day of judgment. So for some application to end here, um, I want to point to another section of love in Scripture, which is Romans 12. And I'm just going to read it, starting in verse 9. Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, Preserving in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not associate, do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I just want to briefly look at the bookends of that passage. Love must be without hypocrisy. And therefore, we as Christians need to, as Paul says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And then he ends it with, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And so 1 Corinthians 13 shows us that without love, these gifts of revelation, these gifts of power, and these gifts of service are useless. In fact, without love, these gifts are hypocritical. Without love, we have become like the Sadducees and the Pharisees that disgusted Jesus. And love hates hypocrisy because hypocrisy is evil. So when we try to serve God from a loveless heart, we are acting as evil hypocrites. But love overcomes hypocrisy with good. And so here it is. Here's our, the end of our introduction is our call this morning is as we go through chapter 13 in these coming weeks, as we go through what it means to be loving is that we would examine ourselves. We would examine the way that we've been serving in the body of Christ. We'd examine the way that we look at loving others or loving our enemy or loving our spouses or loving our children or loving our friends. We would examine, are we doing this from a foundation of biblically defined love or are there areas that we see that we are living hypocritically? Are there areas that we see that we are serving hypocritically? Do you serve God with love as the Bible defines it? It must be, it cannot be from the flesh. It must be from the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, the work of the Holy Spirit, I mean, those of you who have been in the Sunday school class, you know that the, the work of the Holy Spirit is he creates, he communicates, and he pours out love. And the symphony that he creates in the body of Christ is the gifts and services within the church. And it really is a symphony of love from God displayed, not only to other Christians, but to the world as well. So we need to have this foundation of love. Be examining that as we go through how Paul defines it in the coming weeks.